Good morning, everybody, and uh, let me add my welcome to the one that Sarah gave earlier on. It's uh, good to be here. For those who don't know me, um, my name is John Salter. Indeed, if you do know me, it's still John Salter, actually. Um, um, and I'm the ancient vicar of Emmanuel who doesn't seem to be able to drag himself away. But uh, it's really good to share with you both in bringing the word of God this morning and uh, in our communion service. So let's be quiet and let's ask God to guide us. Father, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for your love for every single one of us. And we pray that you will meet with us this morning in word and in sacrament. May we know your presence. Will you touch our lives afresh and send us out with a new desire to live and indeed to speak for you. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, the readings we've had are about joy and um, disaster, really. The, uh, the reading from Genesis, the tremendous joy, that um, surprise, of course, that uh, Abraham and Sarah had, uh, having a, a child in their old age. And then the story in the New Testament of what we call the Gerasene or the Gadarene demoniac. Actually, it comes immediately after uh, a previous story, and the two belong together. Um, one is the storm on the lake, which is uh, representing, if you like, forces external to us. And the other is the Gadarene demoniac himself, um, representing forces internal. And you can see why they obviously belong together. Um, the vessel at the mercy of the wind and the waves, and the man torn apart with a, a mob of demons inside of him. And the good news, really, from both of those stories, and I'm going to look at them together, is that they demonstrate that whatever our circumstances, Jesus himself is always in control. So quickly, the storm on the lake. Those of you who've been with us to Israel over the years may be able to picture it, and you can anyway. Imagine a boat on the middle of the Lake of Galilee. Um, one trip that we took many, many years ago, we were fortunately on the shore rather than in the boat this time, and it was a wonderful blue sky, and within five minutes, everything had come, become overcast, the clouds were ominous, it was really dark, and uh, the, the wind just hurtled down through the mountains uh, on the edge of Galilee, and it whipped up the waves, and the heavens opened, it was really black, and the most horrendous hailstorm. And we all ran for cover, not because we were getting wet, but because the hailstones were really enormous and actually hurt. So we ran more for protection from them than we did from getting wet. And then within another five minutes, it had all gone. It was azure blue sky again, and we were back in the Middle Eastern sunshine as if it had all been a just a, a dream of some sort. Well, there must have been something like that uh, as far as the disciples were concerned. We're told that it was a squall. Uh, Mark tells us that it was a furious squall and the waves were uh, thundering over the boat. It was in danger of being swamped. The disciples uh, went to Jesus because we're told they were, verse 23, in great danger. I mean, a lot of them were 
fishermen who'd spent quite a bit of their lives on the lake. Um, they were professionals, and yet they were terrified, and they thought they were going to drown. In fact, um, they were panic-stricken, to be honest. And the amazing thing is that there was Jesus fast asleep. Mark tells us that he was right at the back of the boat with his head on a pillow. All of them were panic-stricken, but there he is, asleep. Yeah, he'd had a full day, a long day, a demanding day. Um, Luke summarises it right at the beginning of the day in the early verse of chapter 8, verse 4, where he says that people, a large crowd was gathering and people kept coming to Jesus from town after town. So it had been really full on. Uh, demanding, he'd travelled, he'd healed, he'd cast out demons, he'd taught and he'd preached and he would have been absolutely exhausted. And that kind of ministry, as uh, many people will know, is incredibly demanding. Of course, there are other kinds of exhaustion as well. Well, we had a lady on our staff a good many years ago, who some of you will remember, Maureen Joseph, and we employed her as a pastoral worker, particularly for sort of support of those who are elderly. And um, before she'd been with us, she'd had a temporary fill-in job where uh, it was very manual. She was carrying enormous, huge boxes in a warehouse, really heavy. And I remember her saying, you know, that she ended every day totally and utterly exhausted. And then she came and joined us, and she spent every single day listening to people, uh, giving advice where they asked for it, counselling, supporting, encouraging, just being with them. And she came to me after she'd been here a month and she said, do you know, John, I've never, ever been so exhausted in my whole life. I don't know when the last time was that you were so, so tired, whether it was physically, emotionally, whatever, that you literally could not keep your eyes open. And that's how it must have been for Jesus. A very, very demanding day. But here he is in the middle of an incredible storm which makes the others fear for their lives, and Jesus is fast asleep. No wonder he's dead to the world, really. Just picture the disciples shaking him. Um, how on earth could he sleep? With the wind howling round, the sails probably torn to shreds, the boat tossing and pitching, the waves thundering and pouring into the boat, they were all desperate and terrified. So they shook him awake. And they said, Master, Master, verse 24, we're going to drown. And then Jesus got up, we're told. He rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided, it says in verse 24, and all was calm. Mark tells us what he said to the wind and the waves. He spoke the words, quiet, be still. And those are words that mean a huge amount to all of us, really. Um, I guess we imagine them probably as a softly whispered lullaby. But the truth is that Jesus would have shouted at the top of his voice into the teeth of the gale uh, in order to be heard by others as well as by the, the natural forces. Reminds us of, um, it reminds me of Psalm 46, verse 6. Be still and know that I am God. A verse which is so much used in quiet, prayerful meditation, contemplation. It's found its way into innumerable songs and uh, hymns, hasn't it? 
But look back at the context, and it's very like Luke chapter 8. From Psalm 46 says this, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. It's a picture of God in the midst of terrible forces of evil. Um, nations falling, mountains collapsing, and the whole world sort of falling in. It's a picture of God saying, now learn who's really in control. When nations are warring against each other and we don't know what to do, and there's civil strife of one sort or another, God shouts, I am the one who is really in control. So it's a picture of how he said that, and they all need to keep quiet, as do all the forces of evil and all the other authorities, the good authorities in our world as well. And we all need to know who is really Lord of all and who is in control. So there's perfect calm, and the boat sails on, and they come, as we read, to the region of the Gerasenes. We don't know the precise location, Gerasa, Jerash is in Jordan. It's a, quite a distance from the Lake of Galilee. Um, some translations speak of it being Gadarenes. Gadara is also in that area, not quite as far away as Jerash is. Um, so you can't locate the actual place, but there are lots of places associated with those towns which have a steep um, cliffside almost down into the Lake of Galilee. So it was somewhere around the northeastern shore of Galilee. Jesus stepped ashore, and he's confronted by this man. Luke tells a story, and of course Luke is a doctor, and uh, he knows that there is a difference between illness and demon possession. Now, now here's not the time to go into all of that, but Luke had no doubt about it whatsoever. Here was a man who was totally deranged, he was naked, he was living in the tombs, he was more at home with the dead than he was with the living. Um, in his quieter moments, people had chained him, but then he would break the chains. And you know, it is amazing the strength that disturbed people can sometimes have. Uh, I remember being called into a house where I was told and people believed that a man was demon-possessed, a, a young husband, as it happened. And I, I went into the home, and as I went in, it was just an ordinary Yale lock. I put the snip down so you couldn't turn the ferrule um, because he was a bit of an escapologist as well, and he'd quickly get out if he knew someone was coming to see him. So I, I went in, and uh, we started talking, and within minutes, he was up and away. And he ran to the door before I could do anything, and he, he took hold of the ferrule. He didn't have needn't have turned it, he just took it and he pulled it, and he pulled the whole thing off the door, screws the lot, 
and opened it and ran out. And it is amazing how strong sometimes people can be who are very deeply disturbed in one way or another. I'm no expert. And many of you will know that I read a psychology degree before I ever went into theology. And it so happens that I've had quite a bit to do over the years with people who are seriously disturbed. And I'm not an expert. My own view is that you, all of us need to be incredibly careful before making a diagnosis of demon possession. It's got to be a, a really last resort um, position that we come to when everything else has failed. And we need biblical criteria for making it. And with this man, they are there. A deranged man, totally out of his mind, possessed, and immediately he recognises who Jesus is, and he's terrified of him. Verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. And the demons then plead for Jesus to send them into the pigs rather than into the abyss. Jesus gives permission and they rush down the sea into the sea and are drowned. There's no need really to be sorry for the pigs. I mean, whatever you make of it, um, humans are certainly much more valuable. Maybe the man needed not only to feel that the demons had gone, but to see some sort of visual demonstration of it. And it was the pig tenders who then ran off to tell everyone else what had happened. But the end of the story, as with the storm earlier on, is a position of complete calm. Verse 35, when the people gathered, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. So two events. A storm representing forces outside of us, a man with demons representing forces inside of us. Both begin with violence and chaos. Both end with peace and calm. Both are stories about fear, and it's intriguing that in both of them there's not only fear at the beginning, but fear at the end as well. At the end of the storm, verse 25, in fear and amazement, the disciples asked one another, who is this? He commands even the wind and the waves, and they obey him. At the end of the story of the demoniac, the people in charge of the pigs, we're told, verse 35, were afraid. Then all the rest of the people who um, they'd been and told about it, when they gathered round, verse 37, all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. Makes me think of, of Peter after he'd listened to Jesus speaking from the boat on the Lake of Galilee with people crowding up to him. And do you remember Peter falling down and saying, as he held on to Jesus, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. That there's this ambiguity, this sense of being awestruck, really, overcome with a kind of fear, knowing that 
there is a supernatural, powerful presence, and we are there. And that's how it felt for them. So what do we make of it all? Well, there's undoubtedly a war on between good and evil. There are powerful, supernatural, demonic forces of evil around. Satan is implacably opposed to the work of God, and he has been ever since the beginning of time. There's a war in which we're all involved. It rages, if you like, particularly fiercely around the Christians, all of us, and around the Christian church. Paul makes that clear, doesn't he? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of this dark world and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. And Peter adds, your enemy, the devil, goes around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So it's a war which surrounds us on all sides. The church is like a small open boat, pitching and rolling in a violent sea, tossed like a cork, completely vulnerable and forever in danger of being swamped. And in addition, some of the people inside seem to be rocking the boat quite a bit as well. It's a war which penetrates inside all of us too because we're a walking civil war, aren't we? There's an enemy within that's too powerful, too cunning, who delights in playing havoc with our lives and doing the, his utmost to capsize whatever work of God is going on, whether it's in the church at large, out in the world, or within each one of us. Our only hope is in the victory over Satan and over evil, which Jesus won on the cross. Paul reminds us in Colossians 2, on the cross, Christ freed himself from the power of spiritual rulers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them by leading them as captives in his victory procession. And as we wait for the consummation of all of that, let's be encouraged that the key to both of these stories is not actually in the calm at the end of them. Ultimately, the calm that they depict is yet to come, actually. Just look at the state of the world at the moment. Look at the violence, the storms raging around, and many of us would say within as well. So it's not that the storm has come to an end and there is a calm. The message is we know who's in control, who's in control of the wind and the waves. We know the one who can speak a word and bring peace and calm. So as we wait that consummation, and we may be in the midst of all kinds of storms at the moment, or we may be experiencing joy and laughter like Abraham and Sarah, whatever our circumstances, we're in the presence of a supernatural, awesome God. And what does he want us to do? Right at the end of this story, knowing that we're totally safe in his hands and that things have changed because we know he's in control, whatever our circumstances, Jesus says to the demoniac, verse 39, sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over the town how much Jesus had done for him. And simply that's what he's asking us to do, isn't it? Uh, we don't have to answer all the questions that people have got. Um, that's the last thing people want, to be honest. 
the last kind of people they want to meet, people who are searching for meaning and purpose in life, the last person they want to meet is someone who's so certain and cocksure of everything, they know all the answers. Uh, there's such a degree of certainty that uh, they come across as not just confident, actually arrogant, bigoted even. And you say, well, I'm not like that, I don't know any answers. It's not that I don't know all of them, I don't know any of them. You don't have to. None of us do. All we need to do is tell our story of what Jesus has done for us. And that's what it's all about. You don't have to be an expert in anything. Just tell what it means to know that he's there, to know that he's in control, to know that we can rely on him always in all circumstances. And by all means, give a story from our own experience. But true testimony is never about us. Go and tell what God has done for you. Go. He went and he told what Jesus had done for him. What has Jesus done for you in your life? Recently or a long time ago? Where is he now? All that we need to do is look for opportunities. And if you say, well, I'm not an evangelist, I'm not that gifted. Yeah, there are opportunities provided in church. You can invite people to a curry night, to an alpha course, to umpteen things that are going on uh, all times of day. So there are plenty of opportunities. Invite them in anyway, just for home, to be time, to spend time with them. We have some friends who uh, needed to uh, turn their dining room into a, an extra bedroom for health reasons. So they got rid of the dining table and the chairs. They can't invite people to meals anymore. So you don't have to be a cordon bleu cook. They invite people to coffee and biscuits. And they say they've had a whale of a time. You know, uh, day after day, they find people coming and they'll come at 10 and they'll stay till lunchtime and they have fantastic conversations just as friends. All we've got to do is get alongside people. The phrase that Dub used several weeks ago and that Tom has referred to once or twice as well, loving people towards Jesus. We haven't got to have the answers. We just tell our story as we befriend people and look for opportunities. If you're not good at taking the initiative, some of us are better than others at that, just look for the opportunity. Do you remember Peter says, be ready to give a reason to anyone who asks you about the hope that is in you. If we all covenanted to go away, and whenever anyone asks us a question about God, about faith, about why we're Christians, covenant to respond. Take a deep breath if you like and say, well, you know, this is God giving me an opportunity. Haven't got the answers, but let me just tell my story of how much God means to me and all of us can do that thank you for listening can I ask you invite you to stand and we'll pray together Lord how we thank you that you're the one who stills the storm whether that's raging outside of us or inside of us and some of us haven't yet come to a position of calm. And we know that ultimately that is long in the future. Because the forces still rage around and within. But we simply come to you and we ask, Lord, that you will touch our lives afresh this morning. Renew our love for you. Give us a desire, a willingness, a readiness to tell our story and we pray that by your spirit you will 
encourage us. May we look for opportunities this week and know that you are at work, not only in us, but amazingly through us. That people may hear our story, but not about us, about you. Hear our prayer, for Jesus' sake. Amen.